0: Good morning. Good morning. I just realized I had my microphone on the entire worship time and I just turned it off and now I turned it back on uh, for this time. Uh, Great to be here. This is my wife, Beth. I'm Dan Henley. Uh, I'm pastor of North Park Church in Wexford, Pennsylvania, just north of Pittsburgh. Uh, But I did hang out in Palm Bay for a few years, uh, roughly around 27 back in a previous life. Uh, Yeah, so good to be with you. You know, it's March 8, 2020. A lot of us didn't think we would ever see March 8, 2020, and here we are at Bayside High worshiping God. How did we get here, Gary? How did this happen, Janice? Yeah, this is crazy. And uh, I'm going to go off script a little bit, sorry, but, uh, you know, I I, I thought of a story back in 1984 or so, Beth and I were still living in the Melbourne uh, Melbourne area before the church uh, covenant moved to Palm Bay, and uh, I was always in search for a cheap haircut because, as you can tell, I don't invest a lot in this. And and so I found a place where the guy charged like four bucks back in the day. And so I went to get my hair cut by this guy, and there was no waiting line. <laughs> and uh, and I went right in, and he was a very, very mature man. Uh, and uh, and so he gave me my $4 haircut, and the haircut was fine. problem was it took him 50 minutes to cut my hair. Ain't nobody got time for that. 50 minutes, and I realized he's not in it for the money. He just... He told me stories the entire time. He was just looking for an audience to tell his stories to, and the haircut was a ruse, you know, to get you in the chair. And so, uh, you know, I'm not charging much for this sermon, so I get to tell stories. There you go. Uh, so here you go, uh, story number one. December 4, 2008, uh, Beth and I fly to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, for our first meeting with a search committee of North Park Church up there, and uh, they, they wanted to have dinner with us at 5.30 that afternoon. Problem, problem, Florida was playing Alabama in the SEC championship game at 4 o'clock that day. By the way, isn't this, this is an amazing venue to me. I spent, a, I spent a little bit of time here at Bayside High, but in the other, other room across the way there, never in this room, and I come in here and I'm like, they have a food court in high school. I mean, why, where was this when I was in high school? This is amazing. And then the banners of uh, Florida Gator banner to my left. I, I noticed there's no FSU banner, <laughs> and uh, but there is a Clemson banner. Hi, huh, Ann? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> good good for the Clemson folks. Where was I? December four, two thousand and eight. So Beth and I are staying at the Sheraton in Cranberry Township, uh, Pennsylvania. And uh, at four o'clock, I go downstairs. Because the Steel Gator Club of Pittsburgh is meeting to watch the Florida-Alabama SEC championship game in the sports bar at the bottom of the Sheraton. So, okay, I told the committee they had to videotape the rest of the game so I could watch it after the interview time. But uh, So, I went down to watch the first half in the sports bar down there, and I, and uh, about 20 people had gathered, and I meet this guy, and he had these twin boys about 12 years old, and I met him. This is Gordon. This is our son, Daniel, Joshua, et cetera. And, I, and so I, I began to ask him how he was connected with the Florida Gators. and oh he's a graduate of 1980. Okay, da-da-da-da-da. And how'd you get to Pittsburgh? Well, I first moved to a town called Ocala. Oh, yeah, I've heard of it. In fact, I grew up there. And he lived there for 12 years. And then he said, I went to Orlando to get a degree in counseling. And I said, oh, my, what's uh, what school? And he goes, oh, a little school you'd never heard of. So try me. He said, it's Reformed Theological Seminary, and I said, oh, well, I'm a graduate of Reformed Theological Seminary. My son is there now, and then we knew we had the Christian connection going on, and then he he ended up going to Pittsburgh because he was an Episcopalian back when that was an okay thing to be, and he got a degree from a seminary in the greater Pittsburgh area uh, there and went into the ministry and then was in the sports bar with his twin sons, on December 4, 2008, to meet me. We had prayed as we went up to Pittsburgh that God would give us somebody who was not a part of our church that I could connect with and be a confidant with and be a good friend with, and God dropped this. He's the first person I met, wasn't a part of the search committee in Pittsburgh, and this was the guy that God sent us to be a close friend and confidant, and then He moves to Gainesville two years later to become an intervarsity varsity staff worker at the University of. Florida, indeed, and uh, that—that's what brings us here. That's—that's that's, that's the justification for that story. Besides the sweet providence of God. By the way, we discovered he went to high school with Beth in Bradenton. Then he lived in Ocala, my hometown. Then he followed us to University of Florida. Then he followed us to Reformed Seminary. Then he followed us to Pittsburgh, and then he came back to Gainesville, which is cool. And one of his twin sons got married yesterday, uh, and it was at the Chapel of Reformed Seminary where our Andrew was married. It was uh reception was at the Tuscawilla Country Club where Andrews reception was, and so boy, just a, a weekend to flood my heart with a lot of a lot of memories and reflections on the providence of God over the years there, and then twin boys, and one of them's getting married, the other one's getting married in August, uh, but the twin brother gave the best man address and just it If any of you were at my last sermon at Covenant in 2006, it was like that. He just wept the entire time. Can you imagine a twin giving up his twin brother? I mean, it's one thing for a parent to give a child away, but somebody that had lived that close in proximity, but it was very, very sweet, and so we had a wonderful day yesterday celebrating the grace of God for our brother Gordon and his wife Ruth and their family and all of that, and then uh, in connection with that, we get to be here with you today today and uh, what a sweet pleasure for us to be here uh, with you, so many friends, some of our dearest friends in the world in this room on March 8, 2020 at Bayside High, some of whom, many of whom, in fact, are family. I used to joke back in the day uh, like when Covenant had so many Harris Corporation workers, I mean in the, in the 80s it was like half our working men worked for Harris Corporation. I used to joke we should call ourselves Harris Presbyterian Church and <laughs> hey, Uncle Ben, you could do it, (laughs) you could do that here uh, if you wanted to. So, yeah, so a lot of them are family. In fact, uh, this, that's funny, I started recording myself on my phone. Uh, Looks like a lot of people that were with us at Thanksgiving dinner at Ben's house uh, here And one of the neat Fody family traditions, which we've come to appreciate and admire the Fody family, some of their fun traditions. And they they do a talent show after Thanksgiving, which I think is a lot better than watching the Lions, you know what I mean? And uh, and so Beth and I wrote a song and sang it for them, and it's uh, relevant for today. So I'll just give you the first verse that went like this. Almost heaven, central Florida. Turkey dinner with the Fodi family. Life is warm. They're warmer than PA. Oh, yeah. And we got four grandsons. Bless them, Lord, I pray. You know the song? Ninety-five, <laughs> take me home to the place. I belong, Central Florida. Sun and beaches, take me home, Lord, someday. And so here we are. Here we are. Uh, all right. That's all, that's all extra. Uh, now we get to the Word. Psalm 63 is what I uh, decided to speak to you from today, a psalm that has come to be very, very precious to me. And uh, Ben tells me all of you have ESVs, but he put the slides on New American Standard, which is my version. Does anybody have a New American Standard Bible here? Anybody have their New American Standard Bible? Then I'll go with this. Uh, I'm not looking at my Facebook page. I'm actually reading the Bible uh, here this morning. This is God's Word. A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O oh God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thus I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. I'm going to go ahead and read the other three verses. We want to speak to them as much as the others, but the rest of it says, but those who seek my life to destroy it will go into the depths of the earth. They will be delivered over to the power of the sword. They will be a prey for foxes, but the king will rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him will glory, for the mouths of those who speak lies will be stopped." So how you doing? Yeah, how you doing? Uh, I've been asked that a few times already. I expect I'll be asked that again. We're doing well, by the way. Thankful for that. Uh, Very few, I tell people we're between crises at the moment. You know, when you have four kids and 14 grandchildren, between crises is pretty rare, but we are. Thank the Lord for that. But how are you doing? How many times a week do you get asked that question? Maybe nowhere more often than when you show up at church, right? How you doing? Most of us have sort of a stock answer to that question. Fine. Good. No problem. Could be worse. If you remember Jim DeAger, what did he always say? Terrific! <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes we hear the question, how are you doing, as a simple greeting, no different than howdy, how are you, how are you? We may not even feel the need to answer the question. We wonder, of course, sometimes whether the person asking really wants an answer. I mean, if you think about it, it can get kind of complicated, this this question that we put before each other all the time. But let's imagine somebody asks you that question in a way that suggests they really want An honest answer from you, how you doing? Even still, that's a tough question. That's tricky. I I know I'm prone to overthink things from time to time, but I wrestle with how to respond when somebody asks me upon what do I base my answer to that question. For most of us, there are a couple of ways that, that we can go. When we think of how we are doing, we can think of our external world, or we can think of our internal world. And by external world, I mean, how's your health? How, how's your career? Your, your finances? How's your family and your relationships going? How'd your favorite team do yesterday? Not good. Uh, those kind of things. How, how are you doing? Great. I just got a promotion at work. Terrific. My daughter just married a, a great guy. Or, you know, our business is really struggling. My father just uh, just had a stroke. You see, those are what I'm referring to here as external realities, no mention in any of that of how your emotional world may be impacted, although oftentimes we can imagine based upon what you tell us. So that's one way to answer the question, how are you doing? You ponder your externals, referencing externals. The other way to answer the question is by referring to your internal world, when you think how am I? You ponder your emotional condition. Am I anxious? Am I uh, sad? Am I angry? Am I happy? Am I excited? Am I contented? When you truly answer the question, which way do you go? Do you go to externals or do you go to the internals? Now, obviously, there's a link between those two things. If someone just found out that their spouse has cancer, then we would anticipate that such an external reality would have a significant impact upon that person's internal reality. But but that impact, you understand, is not the same for every person, is it? What you tell me is going on over here in your externals may suggest something about what might be going over here going on over here in your internals, but it certainly doesn't make it clear or certain. So I'm asking you, what is the connection between your, inter- your external world and your internal world? Those two worlds come together in the elements of your personality we call the heart And the mind. But it's far from simple how these two correspond, and it differs from person to person. And at the risk of oversimplifying, let's consider just the categories of good and bad in the realm of the external and in the realm of the internal, okay? With just those two categories, we have four possible arrangements. First, there is the situation of someone who is doing well in both. For Heather, Her work world is a joy. She's in good health. Her relationships are all at peace. Uh, And corresponding to that, Heather is feeling well too, content. She's not anxious. She's not depressed. She's generally happy. So for Heather, it's good and good, right? We got pictures up there? Yeah, that's it. Okay. Uh, On the other hand, it's easy to imagine Jared and his condition in life. Jared just found out he's being laid off by his employer, and he doesn't know where he's going to be able to find work. Uh, In addition, his back is bothering him, and there's things he used to be able to enjoy he can't do anymore. Uh, Jared, uh, you know, is having a tough time with his kids and his siblings, not getting along. As he would assess it, life is hard. Jared's internal world reflects his external world. He's down, he's anxious, he's definitely not a happy guy. Bad here, bad here. So those are two possible categories that are easy to understand. But we all know that human reality is such that some people are good in one dimension and not good in another dimension, right? For example, Brenda. In the externals, Brenda would seem to be well, no health problems to speak of, she has a quality job, making good money, no particular crises in her interpersonal relationships, but Brenda is not happy. She is full of anxiety, she's depressed, she's fearful of a lot of things. Her internal world is not a positive thing at all. Does this ever happen? good here in the externals, bad over here in the internals. Some of you are there today. Most of us have probably been there at some point in our lives. The other fourth category then is obvious. This is Roger who is experiencing some real problems in his external world. His job has come to an end. He has uh, health issues as well. He may even be dealing with difficult relationships. Maybe his marriage is is struggling, but you ask Roger, how are you doing? And Roger is able to say, I am well, because on the inside, he is truly happy. He is not down. He is not discouraged. He's not hopeless. His attitude is positive. He's at peace, peace with God, peace within himself, and he certainly feels the struggles, but they aren't tearing him up on the inside. Okay. Now, is it fair to say that generally speaking, all four of these kinds of persons are represented here, and you know people that have been in all four positions, maybe yourself at different times in your life, but you certainly have known people who have been in all four of those categories. And if this is real and if this is true, there is an important lesson for us. Your internal well-being is not determined by your external circumstances. It is influenced, it is affected, but it is not determined by those things. Is that fair to say? Thank you. And if that is fair, it raises the huge question of what makes the difference then in the condition of a person's internal world? If the internal is not just a result of the external, what determines someone's internal health and the happiness of their heart? I had marked on my calendar for March 8, 2020, Visit Sean. Um, Many of you know Sean Casey, and I have uh, failed to visit him. When I come to this area, uh, we have a particular attraction on Empire Avenue and Melbourne Avenue, that ke- uh, Melbourne that keeps us from seeing a lot of people that uh, we know and love in the area. And last time I was here, I was alerted that my friend Sean was uh, not going to be with us much longer, so I put on my calendar to go see him after I finished here today, but he got a promotion before I was able to do that, but I think of him to some degree as I offer this message today. So, we'll dedicate this one to Sean Casey. This brings us back to Psalm 63. This is one of those psalms for which context is important. The opening line of the psalm says, ah, there it is, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Specifically, when this psalm was written, we believe David had fled Jerusalem because his son Absalom had brought an army into Jerusalem, and deposed his dad, ran him out of the capital city. It's there in 1 Samuel 15 for you to read. Get, get the story here. David is king in Jerusalem at this point for about 17 years. One of his many sons, because he had too many wives, he had too many sons, one of his many sons uh, recruited an army to go and overthrow his father. That's bad. David's uh, life and kingdom is under assault, and not just from anybody, but from his own son. I mean, this is a terrible It's a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. David has huge problems within his family. Oh, what happened to me? (laughs) David has huge problems within his family. (laughs) Do I sound better? Okay, I sounded… They like that. All right. He had huge problems within his family, which was all wrapped up as well with huge problems at work for David too. For him, work problems also meant an imminent danger to his health. He was in danger of losing his life. So David is experiencing as bad a day as any of us have ever gone through, I expect. He can't go home to count his blessings. He is on the run to save his life, and therefore he goes from the comforts of the palace to the austerity of of the desert. Dangers and deserts, that's what he's facing. His external world then would be regarded as what? Extremely bad bad. The psalm itself makes reference to this when it mentions the dry and weary land, and particularly when it mentions those who seek His life to destroy it. But, 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 what does this psalm suggest to us about David's internal world? It seems like David is in this place, bad externals. His son is out to kill him, but he's finding stability and even joy In his internal world. How is that possible? What does the psalm suggest to us? Well, verses 3 to 5 focus on God and His love. David says that God's love is better than life. He says the Lord satisfies His soul like steak and cake satisfy our physical appetites. David bears witness to a never-changing spiritual reality that addresses the deepest needs of the human soul even when the circumstances around him stink and that's really important. One of the most powerful ways we bear witness to Jesus is to walk in peace and happiness despite the negative external realities in our lives. And I, and I say that very mindful that I am a few feet away from brothers and sisters who in the last few years have endured tremendous grief and trial. But one of the most powerful ways we bear witness to Jesus is to walk and speak in peace and happiness, despite the negative external realities in our lives. And when we do that, we announce to the world that our God is a supreme treasure. He is the pearl of greatest price. Many of you are familiar, I expect, with John Piper's famous line that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him, and that satisfaction in God is most obvious when it survives the trials that this world throws at us. But then David goes on to point us to something he actually does, an activity of the mind and maybe the body as well that is part of the secret of contentment for a believer. It's in verse 6. Do we have that? Do you see it? What's it say? When I, what's the word? Remember you on my bed remembering may be the most underrated discipline of the Christian life. But notice what he remembers. It it is God out there in the desert, sleeping in tents under trees. There were all kinds of things vying for David's attention. He could have been eaten up with fears. He could have been stewing with rage. He might have been plotting his strategy for how he was going to take back Jerusalem from his son and his son's armies, but his testimony is in that moment he turned his heart and his mind to the Lord his God. He remembered God and he meditated on Him. Do you think that David's mental focus had anything to do with his positive internal condition? What is happening around us in our circumstances clearly has an effect on our internal world of our mind and our heart, but just as much impact is found in this matter of our inner focus. What do you think about? What do you dwell on? And if we are going to let eternal realities rather than temporal circumstances control the climate of our internal world, it is imperative that those eternal realities own our thoughts and our minds. And our meditations. A.W. Tozer said this what we think about when we are free to think about what we will, that is what we will soon become. Our voluntary thoughts not only reveal who we are, but they predict what we will become. What the externals of your world will be tomorrow, well, that is very hard for me or anybody to predict. What your internal realities will be tomorrow, that is largely known by where your mind chooses to focus. Some of us are familiar with the name Zig Ziglar. Remember Zig Zig was in my lifetime one of the most popular uh, motivational speakers in in America, and he had a lot to teach us about how to nurture a positive mental attitude even when the externals of our lives, uh, the circumstances are difficult and discouraging as they were for David when he wrote our psalm. Here's a couple of Zig's Zig's lines. He had a lot of memorable lines, and he said, it's not what happens to you that determines how far you will go in life. It is how you handle what happens to you. And then he said, we all need a daily checkup from the neck up to avoid stinking thinking, which ultimately leads to a hardening of the attitudes. Stinking thinking. I like that because, you know, it rhymes. That's cool. What's more, it accurately depicts where most of us tend to go When we face adversity, the temptation is to allow the stresses of our external world to obliterate our mental and emotional health. We succumb to fear. We succumb to discouragement. We lose our trust in God. We start looking around to other things to meet our needs. Uh, Many will tell you that the solution to this problem is positive thinking. Positive thinking. Hey, it certainly beats negative thinking. But the Bible doesn't issue a call to positive thinking so much as it does to a God-centered mental focus. What we are given in Psalm 63 is a recipe for such a God-centered mental focus. From verses 6 to 8, we can derive three lessons for how we thrive in dangers and deserts by means of a God-centered focus. The first lesson is that we are to ponder the Lord's presence ponder the Lord's presence. If you're like me, you may find yourself engaged in all kinds of mental stress, wondering what to do, how to deal with your problems, and then all of a sudden, sometimes, you remember God is with you. And just that remembering alters the entire situation. Our loving Lord is always there, always caring, always mighty, always wise. That we learn from our theology. But to find satisfaction in God, we must turn our theology into psychology. We must bring what is out there in here into our hearts and our minds and our souls. This is precisely what meditation does. David says, I meditate on you in the night watches. And in that meditation is the key to making the internal good when the external is anything but good. So, put aside stinking thinking and cultivate the blessed habit of mentally chewing on heavenly truth day and night. You may know Psalm 1, which describes the blessed man or woman who prospers as God defines prosperity, and it says He is one who doesn't listen to the lies of the world, but instead, what? He meditates on God's law day and night. Why does meditation on eternal truths lead to success in the Christian life? It is because meditation is what lets the truth filter from our head down into our hearts and begin to transform our values and our affections and our entire disposition. Meditation can turn the presence of God from a doctrine into a reality of deep personal comfort. Someone said the greatest distance in the world is the distance between the head and the heart, and it is only the bridge of meditation that traverses that critical gulf. Now, variety of ways for believers to meditate. We, we do it through what we read, through what we watch, through what we sing, through what we say. Had a conversation not too long ago with a man who's approaching 90 years old, and, uh, you know, he was quoting Scripture to me throughout our conversation, and he spoke to me about how it was the memorization of the Word of God that had meant so much to him throughout his life. And so, I would say the same thing. The memorization of Scripture has been a big deal for me in getting the truth to enter into my heart. So I offer it to you as, as a valuable practice. However you do it, though, ponder God's Word, His truth. Uh, ponder His presence. That's, we have, everything's a P here, right? And ponder His presence. Second reality, second thing to be doing is to praise Him for His protection. Praise Him for His protection. David says in verse 7, You have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. You have been my help. This is not David's first trial, not by a a long shot. In verse 7, he reflects on the Lord's help in times past, how the power of God had come to him with rescue for his weakness. David learned that in time of danger, he can look to heaven. One of the grand themes of the Psalms is this. God is my refuge. Say that with me. God is my refuge. In the Psalms, God is called a rock, a defender, a warrior, a fortress, all of which remind us to run to Him in time of trouble and put our trust in His benevolent power. In verse 7, the psalmist uses a metaphor that I would not normally think of, but uh, it is used several times throughout the The Scriptures, and particularly in the Psalms, the psalmist sees himself not as a sheep finding solace in the protection of the shepherd, but he sees himself as a little bird who is protected by a larger bird from the predator. "'In the shadow of your wings I sing for joy.'" Now, you may be familiar with Psalm 91. It speaks in a similar way. There it says, He will cover you with His feathers. He will shelter you with His wings. His faithful promises are your armor and your protection. And what does David say he can do in that safe place of God's almighty wings? In the shadow of your wings, I what? I sink. Okay, a little enthusiasm here. I need your help here. In the shadow of your wings, I what? I sing for joy. Thank you. That, that's good. While his rebel son was running the capital, while his life is in danger, while he's out in the desert, he can sing for joy because the comforts of God's presence and God's protection, they are near on his mind and on his heart. That, this is beautiful stuff. And, and I would have you note that the source of David's comfort and the basis for his joy it 's found in things that are entirely outside of himself. he doesn't put his confidence in himself and his skill and his cunning in the image of this verse, he is in himself as helpless as a baby bird before a, a, a hawk or a predator of some type. so he says, You have been my help. you have been my help. not ain't nobody messing with me? No, no. David doesn't claim to have joy because of his own personal greatness, but due to the greatness of his God in whom He finds refuge. Tim Keller says this about the followers of Christ. Our identity is found in what we receive, not in what we achieve. You ever use that line? I bestow it upon you, brother. Okay. (laughs) Feel free to use it several times a year. Our identity is found not in what we achieve, but in what we receive. You can say it either way. I think that's good. It's a very important concept. Essentially, what are you as a Christian? What are you as a Christian? You are a lost boy. You are a wayward, hopeless girl now adopted into the family of the king. Keller goes on to say, as a result, again he says, Our identity is found in what we receive, not what we achieve. He says, as a result, we don't look down on others. If your identity is in what you achieve, your intelligence, your openness, your morality, your wealth, you look down on other people. But there is no basis for pride when your standing is not earned but graciously given. So then, we do not boast about our own abilities. I'm off Keller now, but we say with David, you are my help, you are my joy. My joy is found in your protection, so I do not boast, I praise. I do not boast, I praise. Who here would describe yourself as a competitive person? You're competitive. Okay. I think I generally own up to that, competitive person you know, and uh, there were, yeah, that that can be a problem. And some of you have been around me when that was a problem. Ah, uh, for sure. But, you know, part of you things you figure out as you get older in the Lord is maybe I can turn this character quality or trait into something positive. So, for me, I've tried to take my competitiveness and and turn it into a tool for the spiritual battle. So I write on my to-do list in big letters these words, out-rejoice them. You know, sometimes you can't outrun them, you can't outlift them, you, 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 you can't outlie them, <laughs> you can't out-argue. But you know what the world, we can out-rejoice the enemies of the gospel because they have no grounds for joy and we have a limitless ground. joy. So when the enemy comes against you, whether it's human beings or whether it's satanic forces or whether it's the lies, we who are competitive, let's out rejoice them. Thirdly, we see that we can not only ponder the Lord's presence and praise Him for His protection, we can persevere by His promise. In verse 8, verse 8, my soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. Interestingly, this language uh, in this verse, David describes his relationship with God in terms of his activity towards the Lord, which he calls clinging, followed by the Lord's activity towards him, which he calls what? Upholding. The Old Testament speaks several times about the promise of God to uphold his servant, and since the right hand of God upholds us, We can walk in confidence. We read this not only here, Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear not, I am with you, be not dismayed, I'm your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. In verse 7 of our psalm, God is portrayed as a mother bird protecting her young. But here in verse 8, we fall back on the more typical anthropomorphic language, the speaking of God in human terms, to which uh, I can more easily relate. Our God is mighty, our God is strong, our God is capable, and we are in His hands. Jesus spoke the same way, you know, in John 10, where He says that uh, you are in my Father's hand, and, and what is able to hurt you when you are in the Father's hands? He says, no one can snatch you out of my Father's hand. So, we're reminded of our protection here. But here's what I love even more in verse 8, which has become my favorite verse in this psalm. The upholding work of God does not dismiss the responsibility and activity of the believer. God may uphold me but my responsibility is to do what? Claim. To claim. This verse presents both sides of a biblical truth. So often, in order to make a particular point, we focus on partial realities. You know, someone may say, you have to take the bull by the horn. You have to get up and create your own luck. You know, you have to make your own way because ain't nobody going to do it for you. Uh, or someone may say, let go and let God. Just, just trust the Lord with this. Quit fighting. Quit struggling. Trust that God's going to take care of everything. The, the reality is that there's truth to both of those perspectives, brothers and sisters. Verse 8 gives us both ends of it. While God is keeping me, while God is upholding me, securing me in His hand, my soul is to grab to the Lord for dear life and let nothing break my grip. Our theology reminds us that real believers persevere because they are upheld by God. But that's not without some tenacity on the part of the saints as well. Nothing can steal me from my Father's grip, praise the Lord. But what then do I do according to our text? I cling to Him. I hang on. I adhere to His grace Moses exhorted the ancient Hebrews in this way in Deuteronomy 10, you shall fear the Lord your God, you shall love Him and cling to Him. A chapter later, he says the same thing, show love to the Lord your God by walking in His ways and holding tightly to Him. Why does Moses keep telling us to cling to the Lord, to hold tightly to Him? Why does he do that? Obviously, he recognizes that there's a lot of things out there that are trying to pull your hearts away from the Lord, aren't there. Yes, there are. There are so many things that threaten to break my grip on the Lord, so many things in this world that promise me security and promise me pleasure. And you know what I am talking about here. This is why so often my parting words to people nowadays is this, cling to Jesus. As I leave some of you today, I might say this to you, cling to Jesus. This is what this is what we say, what I tend to say to to new widows like we have in our church and like you have here. This is what I say to men who have lost their job. This is what I say to people who have just received a diagnosis of cancer. This is what I say to students heading off to college and about to face a myriad of temptations. It applies to us when we are hurting And when we're prone to look about for something to numb our pain, it applies to us when we are prospering and we are lured toward the illicit excitements of this world. This reminder is good for us any time, any day, any moment. The temptations to stray are going to come at us from the right and from the left. They will come from our victories, and they will come from our trials You may not hear this pastor say, let go and let God, but you will hear me say, God is holding on to you, so you don't let go of Him. Cling to Jesus, brother and sister. That is what I desire for each of us, because I know that as long as we have Him, we have the ultimate treasure. Have you come to know Jesus as heaven's greatest treasure? Have you come to Grasp how rich you are with Him and how poor you are without Him. Have you seen how Jesus supplies what you need for the challenges of life and the challenges of death? Then, my friend, let that stiffen your resolve to lose anything and everything, but never Him, never Him. Pursue Jesus with a tenacious faith. Maybe that should be our word for the day, the word tenacious. Say it with me. Tenacious, it means tending to adhere, tending to cling. The noun form is tenacity. Say that with me. Tenacity. Tenacity is the ability to hang on. Someone said, when letting go appears most attractive. And there will be times when letting go does appear more attractive. I would say it this way, tenacity is the choice to hang on when letting go appears most attractive. The choice to hang on when letting go appears most attractive. The choice which we reinforce through meditation, pondering God's presence, praising Him for His protection, and so preserving or persevering by His promise to uphold us. Ultimately, I know that's my heart's desire for you. And for me, that our tenacious, joyful grip on Jesus would convey to others just how wonderful and how satisfying He really, really is. In His strong hands, I am secure. And as a result, with my puny hands, I intend to cling. Let's pray.